Welcome to this very special bonus episode of Fright Night Minute with a squee and an OMG. Please welcome Chris Sarandon. <laughs> Hi, everybody. For real. Uh, he's here. <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Great to be here, guys. Uh, just let us know when you're like, all right, enough. <laughs> Scoot away. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I mean, we had to start off with how, how you got involved in, in Fright Night. Well, this was many years ago. I I remember vividly, actually, I was in my apartment with my wife or my former wife in New York, and uh, my agent had sent me the script. And at the time, I had been doing, I did um, A Tale of Two Cities for Hallmark Hall of Fame, and I did, um, trying to remember the stuff that was sort of going concurrently or at least preceded Fright Night. (laughs) At any rate, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And I looked at the title on the uh, on the cover of the screenplay, and I went, "No, no, <laughs> there's no way I'm doing a movie called Fright Night. I'm a, a highly regarded classical actor, <laughs> and uh, also I'm uh, a sort of you know semi celebrity and uh, a part time movie star. And I can't I can't do a movie called Fright Night. But you know, this is these guys are serious, and they've seen. You know, my agent said these guys are serious. They want to meet you." And I said, okay, I owe them the courtesy of reading the script, for God's sake. And I sat down, and within five minutes, I was sucked in. You guys, you know, you're obviously fans of the movie, so you know it's a great screenplay. Yeah. And when I finished it, I thought, I got to meet these guys. (laughs) This is... It's good writing, first of all. It's brilliantly constructed. The characters are all very vivid. It, it has just about everything. The only thing that's missing is I need to meet the director. And so uh, I called my agent and I said, you know, you won't believe this, but Hot Shit Sarandon has got to meet this, <laughs> this whoever this Tom Holland is. He wasn't uh, your uh, peripheral at all? You had, you had really thought or heard of him at that point no i hadn't but then you know my agent did his due diligence and gave me tom's credit sure and uh, you know he was an established screenwriter he had some major motion pictures produced but he'd never directed before and he said well he and uh, herb jaffe the producer would like to meet you um and they'd like to fly you out to la and sit down and have a talk and i said okay i'm i'm game <laughs> And I got on a plane. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I landed. Thank you, God. And Tom and I and Herb sat down and we started talking pleasantries, you know, high weather, et cetera, et cetera. And then Tom said, I suppose you want to know how this is going to be done. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to hear. And Tom proceeded to describe the movie shot by shot. That is, he said, okay, so we're opening on such and such, and then the camera's going to pan over to this, and then this is going to happen, and then camera moves in, and then so-and-so makes an interest. And it was a performance. And with, you know, I have no idea how long later, because I was transfixed, (laughs) he finished, and I said, "Uh, it's a cliche, but where do I sign? (laughs) And that was it. And we were we were uh, joined at the moment intellectually, or at least that moment intellectually and artistically. But then we became sort of joined at the hip as well in the making of the picture, which was a joy. It seemed like probably the original version of Jerry Dandridge was, you know, a, a certain way. But between this collaboration between you and Tom, can you can you talk a little bit about 
I may be wrong, but it's like the what what I've read online in different interviews. It seemed like you know you came up with the idea of, uh, for instance, uh, you know Jerry's love of apples. Yeah, it was really more fruit. I uh, the genesis of that was that we we had a little rehearsal period, which was great. Most movies don't. And we sat around and talked, and Tom said, I'd like you all to do biographies, character biographies, um, just for your own uh, sakes, and also because it will contribute, ultimately, to the finished the finish picture. Uh, the richer we can make these characters, and the richer the, the movie will be. Uh, I went home and thought, Jesus, how do I create a biography for this guy who's lived who knows how long, hundreds of years? And uh, I, you know, got specific about certain things about him, where he came from, you know, what his his long history was. But then I also thought it might be interesting to research bats, because I assumed, as most people do, that most bats are vampires. And as it turns out, the majority of bats are not. They're fruit bats. Uh And I thought, well, gee, wouldn't it be interesting if the character had a little fruit bat DNA somewhere? Mm -hmm. And I brought the idea to Tom, uh, and he said... I love it. I love it. Let's let's figure out ways to, to do it. And and so we worked it in to the script, which the high point to me was the brilliant moment that Tom came up with, which was when Jerry walks out and and uh, Charlie's hiding in the bushes, spying on his new neighbor. Yeah. And yes. um, Jerry senses that he's there and he's eating an apple and he takes a bite of the apple and flips it over toward Charlie and it's this coup de cinema of the apple rolling up, and there's this immense, horrible bite taken out. Yeah. To me, that was the kind of the culmination of you know my idea and Tom's execution. But then we also worked it into other places. I didn't always eat apples, by the way. One, I think one time I was coming down the stairway, I was eating an apricot. We actually uh, talked to your partner, Jonathan Stark, you know, your partner yeah. in the movie, obviously, uh, about uh, the biographies. And he said he threw his away just recently. And we were like, no, did, did, did you get rid of yours, too? Yeah, ah. I don't have it anymore. Did you get to keep any anything from the film? I still have. I think it was Guy McElwain, who was the head of the studio at the time, gave us all a little wooden box, coffin-like box. But it wasn't coffin shaped. It was odd. It, it, I'm sure he got it somewhere else, and then just you know, had with a with a wooden cross in it, and a couple of other artifacts. I can't remember, and I think I still have that somewhere. People keep asking me if I have any of the clothes. I did for a time, mm-hmm. but then over the years, you know, time and moths have their <laughs> have their way. Sure. Uh, and I got I had a couple of the sweaters. Yeah. Tom and I went shopping together. In fact, to create Jerry's wardrobe because he had very specific ideas of what the color palette of the movie was and he wanted my ideas of, of what Jerry would wear as well so we came up with that uh, with the stuff we went to Fred Siegel which is this you know a very expensive boutique in Hollywood and or Beverly Hills I can't remember which but at any rate to Fred Siegel we both bought most of the wardrobe there the coat I think was made that great leather coat I know Tom's hungry for props. Um, I'm trying. I'm really working on him to try to get him to leave me all of it. When <laughs> <laughs> I see in your own nefarious way. I... Well, well, one actual uh, you know item that Jerry always wore was the the ring. We're always kind of oh, trying yeah. to look closely at that ring. Uh, you know, we're we're covering this movie minute by minute. We're about forty minutes in, but that ring's shown up a couple of times, and we're. I always oh, wondered wow. if that was like kind of like a key into you know who Jerry was before. Not that I recall. Uh, I don't remember it having any particular significance other than uh, oh, this is nice. I think I'll wear it. Tom might remember. Yeah, you know, in that biography, like 
could you share like where you thought maybe he came from, how old you thought he was? Um, in France, in the you know in the 16th, 17th century, somewhere in there. If I had my biography in front of me, I could. <laughs> if you guys come across it, let me know. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll scan you a copy if you want. Oh, thanks, thanks so much. <laughs> now, um, how about the uh, the painting of Amy? Ah, that was actually an idea of mine. Oh, okay. That I, I said to Tom one day, I said, wouldn't it be cool if uh, Amy was the 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 spitting image of of long lost love of mm. of Jerry's long long ago when he was the Comte de whatever. Yeah. Um, and Tom, again, sprang, you know, his imagination. Went, oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. In fact, we're going to I'm going to have somebody. And he did. He had it painted and on the set so that uh, everybody could see it um, in that scene when everybody comes to Jerry's house and he's unpacking. I, I think Jerry Dandridge is the perfect depiction of a vampire, like one of the best vampire characters in, in film history. It seems like there was a lot of thought in portraying Jerry, how he speaks, how he moves, you know, certain scenes. Is there, was there a certain part or even maybe before filming where you were like, yeah, I've got this, I've got this, this is, this is, this is the way it's going to be. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, you know, it was obvious from the way the character is written that Todd conceived him as being a very elegant, seductive figure, but uh, I, thanks to Tom, he was constantly reminding me, you know, let's let's go further here in this kind of the seduction, the sort of thing that I'm probably in real life not all that comfortable with, of being somebody who just assumes that he has power over whomever he's uh, in contact with and that he can seduce uh, anyone. And so Tom was constantly encouraging me, OK, you know, you really need to go really go for this. In this scene, when you do that walk toward this person, I want to see that sense that that they are completely in your thrall. And uh, we have to believe that. And he was great that way. I mean, he was his overview of the character was, I, I think, certainly more complete than mine because he'd written it and, he'd, you know, he'd been living with it for a while and was really helpful in that regard. Did you have any other like pre, like Barnabas Collins or Dracula? Did you have anybody to sort of draw from or did you think about it in that way when you said oh, no be a vampire in this film no i mean to me this was a totally unique yeah. uh, way of looking at the, the vampire legend yeah. and and you know to again to tom holland's credit uh, the impetus for his writing this i think was that he loved the genre Sure. And he'd been in love with it for a long time and that he felt that it had fallen into um, disrepair, that people were making fun of it, that, you know, there were, you know, Love at First Bite was had been done, that it, the genre had reached a kind of tipping point and that he wanted to find a way to rescue it. And the way he felt to do it was to bring it up to date, to make the character a contemporary character, mm-hmm. but to uh, also bring back a lot of the great tropes from the early vamp from the earlier vampire movies from Nosferatu where he used that you know the character rising up the the makeup is very Nosferatu like yeah. um, especially in the end uh, some of the the uh, the tropes from the the Bela Lugosi movies but but to do them in a way that's contemporary and to have fun with them without making fun of them which is a really important distinction there's not many movies that have this feeling that Right. There's a lot of horomity these days, like Shaun of the Dead or the, yeah. the, the mingling of horror and comedy. But generally, yeah. the comedy takes over. This is a funny, scary movie. 
Yeah. Because it takes the horror seriously. The makeup is incredible. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's I, all not, not, a, not a bit of CGI there. Old school. Yeah, which is awesome. Big fan of the practical stuff. Yeah. What what side of Jerry did you enjoy portraying? I like see Jerry. There's the humorous side. He's having fun with Billy. You know the scary when you know he gets stabbed by the pencil and the, the makeup. And, and then there's the sensual side when he's tracking down Amy or or rounding the alleyway with Ed. What part of Jerry did you feel uh, just enjoyed more? Oh gosh, I can't say that I, there was any one part that I enjoyed more because I had such a great time. <laughs> the whole picture, I really did. Uh, who wouldn't want to be somebody who's that seductive and that powerful and that brilliant uh, and that evil yeah. <laughs> at the same time? You know, because we do with our villains, we, we kind of live vicariously through them. They do things that we uh, as mere mortals would not dare do unless we're sociopaths or psychopaths. So to, to really inhabit all of those uh, various parts of his persona was just I just had a great time doing mm-hmm. it. Was there any sort of particular scene that you're like when when you think back on Fright Night you're like you're reminded of and that's like maybe you're like your favorite or a piece of dialogue even? I really like the scene with Charlie when I confront him in his bedroom and I give him the chance. I say, "Look, all you have to do is I'm not quoting myself because I don't remember the lines, but <laughs> uh, when I say to him, "Look, all you have to do is just forget about me and I'll forget about you." Mm-hmm. It will be Back to square one, and you're safe. And Charlie refuses, and Jerry says one word in the script, which is fool. But it's not a line that indicates any kind of sense of victory. Right. It's really one of, oh boy, I've lived for this long, and I have to go down this road again. I, I'm of true regret, and, and also there's pain there, the sense that, you know, he's uh, not only does he uh, have to kill this kid uh, who's perfectly seems perfectly innocent, but also that he has to go on this path again. Yeah. Uh, one that has trapped him for 400 years that he's not, you know, this this immortality is an, is a, both a gift and it's a curse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so much is conveyed by that one little line. It's one word. Yeah, and uh, and uh, that uh, I mean I'm very proud of that moment. Yeah, we actually just uh, just covered that recently in our recordings, and uh, oh, cool. so much emotion cool. in the word, just that one word, fool. Yeah, it, yeah there's a little break on your voice in, in the delivery. It's uh, everything you just said is is absolutely conveyed. But I think that's what cements Jerry Dandridge as one of the greatest film vampires of all time. It really does that. There's that much to him. He's not just mm. some monster. Cool. Thank you. Hmm. Do you think uh, Jerry kills out of necessity? Vampires live on blood, or do you think he enjoys it all? I mean, he has a type. I think he's. A, I think it's a combination. Yeah, yeah. That there are times when he kills from thirst, and there are times when he kills because it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It's not about the hunger. It's about necessity. It's about survival mm-hmm. at times, and then at times he enjoys it. It's there's a certain kind of sense of of the. Um, uh, the exhilaration of power uh, over right. mere mortals that's got to be there from somebody yeah. who's lived for that long and has right. exercised it so often and knows that he is he is in many ways omnipotent. Yeah, I was uh, definitely, you know, thinking about Jerry's curse and also thinking of uh, Jerry as the uh, like an authority figure. I mean, especially when, you know, Charlie finds him in his house and it seems like Jerry's sitting there in his father's chair although you know it's not 
explicitly said so. Yeah, just, yeah, but it is the main chair of the, the room. Yeah. And then the, just the, the hand behind there that, you know, mm-hmm. you're approaching your father and you're uh, you're going to be in trouble, that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, how he also uh, adopts Ed. That's the other one, I think. Yeah. The other moment I found really brilliant of Tom uh, in his, uh, conceptually, uh, and that is rather than it's being, uh, Jerry's appeal to Evil Ed is not one of, uh, I'm going to make you powerful and I'm going to make you, uh, I'm going to make everybody sorry that they made fun of you. It's really more a, a matter of, uh, I'm going to take care of you. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's going to ever f- screw around with you again. You'll see. I, I know how it feels somehow. <clears throat> somehow Tom, Jerry does. I'm not sure where it comes from, but there's empathy mm-hmm. there. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you went through for the makeup? I mean, how hindered did you feel? Well, we've all complained about the contacts because those were the days when there was no such thing as the soft contact. Uh-huh. They were all hard glass, and they were painted. Friggin' things were just, you could only wear them for 15 or 20 minutes at a time. So, you know, we'd wear them, and then we'd go, okay, that's it, I'm done. <laughs> and you'd take them out, and then they'd shoot the reverse of whatever the uh, the shot was so that uh, you were off camera because they were just so friggin' painful. And the makeup itself, the big makeup, the end makeup, we shot over a period of, I think, a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the... Makeup started at 4 o'clock in the morning. My call was 4 a.m. Yeah. And I'd arrive in the makeup trailer, and Kenny Diaz, who was the sort of the guy who was the, the FX, you know, sort of on-the-scene makeup guy, although, you know, it was designed by Steve and uh, Steve Johnson, and, and, uh, and Kenny <laughs> would have been sleeping in the trailer. In the, you know, some of these trailers have, a, like, a nook uh, up in one, uh, one end of them. And I'd walk into the trailer, and there'd be nobody there. And I'd think, oh, they get me here at 4 o'clock in the morning, and nobody's here. And I'd go, hello. And then I'd hear, hey, all right, let's go. And then Kenny Diaz rolling out of this this nook up at the end of the makeup trailer, ready to rock and roll. And we'd sit there for eight hours. And uh, just literally layer by layer, blending. Uh, I asked them after a while, because I come from the theater, and I said, look, I'm comfortable with a, with a makeup sponge and a brush, can I blend the hands so that I've got something to do, otherwise I'll go mad. Yeah. Uh, so when they put the latex fingers on me, then I did the, the blending of the fingers into my fingers while Kenny was working on my face and my ears and my head and my hair and all that, and finally the teeth, and then I'd be ready to go at noon, and I'd work for whatever number of hours that uh, Screen Actors Guild lets me work, uh, after I'd been on call at 4 a.m., and then I'd go home and come back the next day, and uh, the whole thing would start all over again. How long did it take to get out of the stuff? It took a while because it all had to be peeled, and then right. the acetone, you know, everything had to be taken off, and uh, I had to be clean for the next day. Do you think that led to the demise of practical effects? Too many people sitting for so many hours, and it's... well, but practical effects have have, have evolved. I mean, if you watch Saturday Night Live, the guys that do those makeup effects, I mean, if you look, people change from scene to scene, and the the change is virtually, you know, it's it seems instantaneous. Yeah. It's not, obviously, uh, but it's much quicker. I think uh, this was much more piecemeal sure. than the, the modern special effects makeups. I think the modern special effects makeup are much more of a piece, although I, I 
I haven't done any, so I, I, I can't tell you for sure. But I think it's just it, the process has become as as most things do over time. You know, the tech the technology evolves. Mm -hmm. How the hell did they without uh, without makeup? How the hell did they make you look like that in Nightmare Before Christmas? <laughs> That's a good question, and I cannot let that secret out. That's proprietary. <laughs> Disney owns it. Uh, how about the uh, the teeth? Were mm. the teeth uh, very hindering as well? No, no, not really. I mean, they were pretty well. You know, they they did a, a casting of amalgam in our mouth, so yeah. uh, they were very form fitting. Yeah, and not not hard to navigate. Uh, how about the club scene? What what went into creating that? I mean, the whole. As I recall, we got into a studio and we did a little work on the, the dance moves themselves with the choreographer. As with all big crowd scenes where there's a lot of stuff going on, it was, you know, arduous, but fun. I, I did have a question about uh, voice alteration. Did they alter your voice at all when you get the pencil stabbed and you're screaming, no? That was an alteration, I'm pre pretty sure, yeah. Okay. The one where Peter brings up the cross for the first time and you say you have to have faith for that to work, Mr. Vincent. Yeah, I believe that was an alteration as well, I think. I'd have to look at it minute by minute. Jonathan <laughs> <laughs> um, Stark said you, you had a lot of fun for most of the movie, just a lot of laughs, which is Oh, nice. we did. We had a great time. Uh, we, it was a very, very convivial group of people. Uh, it, it was interesting because there was a big generational gap um, with Bill and Amanda and me and Roddy at the time I was in my I don't want to say exactly where I mean no, not that I don't want to say I don't I, I have to calculate I, I was in my 40s right. okay I was in my mid 40s Bill and Amanda were in their 20s and uh, Roddy was a little older than I but we just everybody just blended I, my theory uh, always with movies is and it, it goes for plays as well there, there's some sort of a famous expression that, that clarifies this. Um, the, the people who are running things, the director, the leads, the, the atmosphere on the set mm -hmm. is pretty much determined by those people. And sure. Tom is great. You know, I mean, the only time that Tom was difficult was not with us. He was fighting for more time. Mm -hmm. Uh, he would be given, you know, a hassle by somebody from the studio. He wasn't moving fast enough. I mean, that's always the director's lament. But generally speaking, we got along really well and still do. You know, I mean, we see each other at Comic-Cons and we always go out to dinner together. And the uh, operative bottom line is we laugh. <laughs> uh, everybody has a great sense of humor. I mean, Stark came from, John Stark came from uh, improv comedy. <laughs> Bill Ragsdale is one of the funniest human beings alive. I mean, really quick and very funny. Amanda, smart, 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 smart and funny. Roddy, same. And and so it just it was a great kind of chemical blend that has lived on uh, to this day. When did you end up seeing the uh, final version of Fright Night? For the first time, I think I'm trying to remember if I saw it first on 42nd Street in Manhattan or if I saw it at the uh, in L.A. I know I saw it at both places, but I do remember vividly with a very specific sort of, you know, cross-sectional audience on 42nd Street, and it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, screaming and yelling and laughing and, and, and also just dead quiet at times. And, you know, the, just the reaction that you would want the movie to have, it, it had. Because nobody had any ex expectations about it. You know, people right. were going in to see a, a horror movie, a vampire movie, 
and they got, I think, in a lot of ways, more than they uh, had expected going in. Did you know from seeing it with an audience like that you were a part of something special? I had that feeling from the beginning just because it was such a great script, you know, and Tom was so, you know, spot on with the way he was shooting it. And then when I saw it mixed and the the music is great, uh, Brad Fidel's music is just so terrific. The album is terrific. You know, some of the stuff that they used is so 80s, but it's also very specific to the picture. So when I saw it, I thought, you know, this is guy, and it was a hit, but it, it didn't have the kind of cult status that it has now for obvious reasons. You know, time determines that yeah Um, some movies are very popular when they come out and then they just are forgotten i've been really lucky that i've been in uh, maybe three or four movies that have lived on and princess bride that's nuts (laughs) yeah you you can't believe what it's like the kind of life that princess bride i just finished a comic-con where a woman came up to me and she had a vhs copy a dog-eared, you know, VHS copy that had obviously been through a lot. And she said, I just wanted to show this to you because I used to carry this around in my purse. And whenever I would go over to a friend's house who hadn't seen it, I would say, oh, it just so happens that I have this movie that you have to see, sit down. And she would force people to watch it. And that's how the movie got the life that it did, which is that people discovered it rather than it's being touted as something. When it first came out, people didn't know what the hell to do with Princess Bride. The studio obviously marketed it badly. The movie did okay when it first came out, but it's it's taken on this life that's just it's it's astonishing, really. I I actually uh, officiated my friend's wedding with the uh, marriage speech. I I, Ah, they gave me free reign and I I, whipped that. I get people tell me that all the time. (laughs) It's yeah. in, it's in the zeitgeist. It's yeah. it's uh, yeah. I I can happily say that I did see it in the theater in our little hometown in Vermont, and I want to say it's one of the first movies I ever saw on my own. I was oh. old enough; my mother sort of dropped me off for the afternoon and let me pick. <laughs> People used uh, to do that when I was a kid. You know? Right? Yeah, that doesn't happen yeah, anymore. But yeah, I know. The, speaking of that 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 marriage scene, like, how did you and Robin Wright keep it together during Peter Cook's uh, performance? There? We didn't. <laughs> we didn't. And and we were not really prepared for it either because we'd never seen Peter do it. You know, we oh, just yeah. were there, and he opens his mouth, and we're on the floor. Is you know knowing that we we're going to have you on here, and you know you're not just Jer- Jerry Dandridge. Princess Bride is a great thing to bring up, but there's other ones. Um, uh, Child's Play. You went on to work with Tom Holland, and now you're playing a good guy. Yeah. You know, the one scene that I caught on YouTube, I mean, I've seen the movie before, but I was just, uh, you know, to refresh me, I was the scene where you're driving in a car, and Chucky is trying to sh- stab a knife through the oh, seat, and you're jumping God. up and down. <laughs> I, I think every man in the world has a visceral reaction to that, and even when they talk about it, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes people will come up to me and go, oh my God. <laughs> All I could think about was, yes, I know that you were being, you were going to possibly, I was going to be castrated somehow in the car. Uh, particularly guys have a real strong reaction mm-hmm. to that, that scene. Was it tough work? Uh, pain in the ass, pain in the ass to shoot. Yeah. The knife is not, it's not catching the light right. Let's do it again. Uh. Uh, you're uh, sitting at, the, uh, at a console in a studio, literally with just the camera over my shoulder and my reaching for the dials for hours. So that's the kind of movie that's not a lot of fun to shoot. It was tough. And also winter in Chicago, we were outside. Everybody was dressed in Arctic gear except for the actors, freezing our asses off. I, I, have, to, uh, I have to say, that's also a movie that, I mean, it, it became its the subsequent sequels and other remakes. Yeah, right, right. It, it's, 
you know, it got progressively dirtier and sillier. But because of the book I did with Tom, I, I did a bunch of elementary schools in the area. You know, it's kind of an homage to Tom's career. So I did Hi Chucky and some of, you know, on the cover and some things. I don't know why in 2017, I believe it was, kindergartners and first graders who did all grades know who the hell that doll is, but they do. Oh, yeah. that's, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, when we were making the movie, Alex Vincent had seen Fright Night. Oh. And he was, what, six, five? Yeah. He had seen Fright Night. I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> We, we did hint at uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, how, how, mm. you know, now you're working in voice work. How was that? Uh, that was, I mean, it's a totally different experience. But they flew me to San Francisco from Los Angeles. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, every, like, three months. And I'd go into the studio and I'd have the, you know, the scenes that we were going to record that day. And Henry Selleck and I would just go over the lines. I'd read the lines and then he'd say, give me notes. And then I'd do them again or he'd. You ask me, oh, well, try it this way. Hit this word. Try this. Try this. Try this. And you do the scene that way because he's got it in his head, and I don't necessarily. I mean, I have a sort of general conception, not general, but I have a conception of the character, mm-hmm. but not really exactly how the scenes are going to go because I haven't seen them. Right. I do the couple of scenes. I'd go home for three months, and then they call me again, and I'd come back, and they will have animated those scenes over those three months. Minutely, you know, like 11 seconds a day. Crazy. Was the kind of the usable frames that they had were something like 11 seconds a day. Did, did you get to see any of the, you know, filming of the stop motion animation? Did you get to drop it? Uh, yeah, I watched a little bit of it. Not much. When I was there, I was there to do my, yeah. you know, my dialogue, and they were already moving on. I, actually, so a couple of the things I saw were scenes that other people had recorded. Oh, okay. But then I was, you know, I needed to go up to the studio because sure. Henry was waiting. So, But I did get a sort of tour of the sets, and uh, there were a number of little sets. <laughs> I, I have such respect for the artistry of those those people who do uh, the stop motion. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, now and now, Jack Skellington is on everything. Uh, wh- wh- how do you feel <laughs> when you see when you see Jack's face? Do you feel like that's me, or do you I feel have, <laughs> every time I I meet somebody who has a, they, they have a new piece of merchandising that Disney has created? Yeah. Coffee cups, coasters. <laughs> The statues, various uh, coffins, uh, pops, you name it. Jack is everywhere. <laughs> this is a very important question to me. Do you consider mm. Nightmare a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? I can't <laughs> I tell you how many times I've been asked that question and how many times I've refused to take a stand. No! I mean, th- so I will refuse to take a stand now because why would I have an opinion about that? Good man. That's what I said to Robin before. You need to you need to ask the screenwriter that yeah, question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I just figured that Jack Skellington himself was going to be on. <laughs> no, Jack is the last to know. <laughs> so you did end up playing a cameo in the remake. I did. How did that go? You were JD. That was great. That was really great. I mean, uh, it was a wonderful experience. That Colin Farrell, who was very nervous... To meet me because uh-huh. he had watched the movie like 50 times when he was a kid with his sisters. He and his sister used to watch movies a lot, and he told me he'd watched it over and over. He loved the movie so much, and that he was nervous that he was going to do justice to the character. And I tell them, "Come on, you know, you're Colin Farrell. Just be <laughs> be Colin yeah. and be Farrell. Yeah, yep, that's true. <laughs> you yeah. know, why make a, a, a slavish uh, imitation of the original? Follow they followed the basic plot." 
but they reconceived it and uh, and reimagined it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought they did a nice job. Seeing you on screen in that film was the happiest moment for me. <laughs> We're not great fans of the remake, you know, purists and all, but okay. uh, I thought Colin was great. Lynn, you wanted to ask about a movie you just watched recently, right? Yeah, and I, we'll wrap this up because we, we've had you for a long time. We really appreciate it. I, I just want to briefly uh, mention because... I'd forgotten Bordello of Blood, and oh. I think it's really fun. I think that's a really fun movie. You know, that's uh, that's my... one I had a great time doing because I just loved that character. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I got to be a rock and roll preacher. I got to be a rock and roll preacher. And, you know, I come from West Virginia, and so when I was growing up, those guys were everywhere. Sure. They were on television. They were on the radio. So I, I, I just thought, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to, in a way, kind of pay homage to you know, where I came from and, and the fact that I'm, I was in a rock and roll band when I was in high school too. Right. I was a drummer in high school. And, and so it was, it was fun. And, and the cast, um, Angie Everhart, particularly, who was a really lovely, lovely woman. Wonderful. Dennis Miller has a line in that movie that I think it's one of the funniest in all horror movies. You could call it a horror sort of horror comedy. He, I think she's trying to get him to swing to safety from, from the vampire that's chasing them. And he sees the drop and says, that's the craziest fucking thing I've ever seen. And he turns around to the ladder, and the vampire is waiting for him, and he says, that's the second craziest... Yeah, it's really... <laughs> really makes me laugh. Uh, so, yes, you play drums. I'm a drummer. Do you still... Uh, I, I have a virtual drum set in my basement, but yeah. I sometimes, you know, if I get really kind of uh, looped, We'll sure. go down there and sure. sit and play along with, you know, mostly things like, you know, I'll play with R&B because yeah. uh, I was a big, we, we, we did a lot of covers when I was in the band. Uh, and uh, for a time, we had a, two great guitarists, two guys who were really musicians. I was, I was a dilettante. I really wasn't very good at it. Yeah, uh, Self-taught. And the two guys, one was a country player who adapted and became, you know, a really, and he ended up being a session musician in Nashville and a, a highly accomplished musician. And the other guy was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy named Bert Brunk, who was a soul music and R&B and fanatic. Yeah. And, he, and when we would play gigs, afterward, he would take us to the uh, black Af African-American clubs that sort of dotted the countryside around where I lived in West Virginia. And we would go and sit, and he would jam with these guys, and then sometimes they would let me get up and play with them, and I uh, was just such a heaven. How did you get involved with the uh, the Alanis Morissette Hands Clean video? I was very surprised to see you pop up there. <laughs> Evidently was a fan of mine and asked that if I would do it. And so and I said, are you kidding? Of course. Yeah, yeah, that was a hoot. I guess to kind of wrap things up, how do you think uh, Fright Night has has affected your life? Uh, you know, how has did it change your life? Did it was it just another job or you know? How, oh, it certainly was. No, no way, it was just another. Yeah, job. Uh, I, I think you know, and, and if if I were to you know have a, a ranking of the movies that I've done, it's certainly up there among the greats for any number of reasons. It's execution, uh, the script, the cast. The fact that we had such a good time doing it, the fact that we have uh, our friendships have endured since the movie was made, and that we still love to see each other and hang out. You know, we communicate online. Uh, Ragsdale lives like ten miles from me now. He used to live in L.A., but now he lives close to me, and we get together for lunch every once in a oh, while. Nice. Uh, I love seeing these people. 
that must be a trip uh, a Fright Night fan walking into a restaurant and seeing <laughs> Charlie and Jerry at <laughs> the us, dinner. <laughs> the two of us having a rare, rare hamburger. Uh, and, and sadly, Roddy being gone because Roddy became a friend. And he was a friend of my wife's because she was on a tour with him, a theater tour, before I'm before Friday night. Uh-huh. She had done a production of um, touring production of Charlie's Aunt, I think. I'm not sure with Vincent Price and Roddy, <laughs> and a wonderful woman named Coral Brown who was uh, Vincent's wife. Uh, and she she was on tour with him, and she was a very close friend, and I, and I became a close friend, and we just sad to see Roddy go because we spent many wonderful evenings at his house. Yeah. Mm. All right. I guess we'll wrap this episode up. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll be back with more Fright Night Minute uh, next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, guys. He's a vampire. A what? <laughs> <laughs> You're so cool, Brewster. <laughs>